I hope and pray that I never terribly disappoint people and be a castaway, and I hope no one ever is a victim of a shipwreck that I have caused. I mean that, I'm humbled, totally humbled by that introduction. And uh, I don't deserve it, I really don't. I don't deserve to be here to take Mark Trotter's place when Sam called me several months ago and said, uh, you willing to come back again this year? And I said, well, sure, you know, I'm retired, I don't do anything. <laughs> so uh, I could use a couple extra bucks. And um, so he said, would you come on out and we want you to do the evening sessions and take, and take Mark's spot in the evenings. And I thought, I said, listen, <laughs> and I said this to Sam, I said, nobody can take Mark Trotter's place. Nobody can take Mark Trotter's place. And you're putting me in a very difficult position. You're gonna, I, this is where I may shipwreck. Right here, this week. You're all going down with me, all right? I just want you to know that. But, and I mean that too. I just got to know Mark uh, four years ago coming here to this conference. This is my fifth consecutive year and I've had the privilege of speaking in the morning and he spoke in the evenings each evening and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him more than that enjoyed getting to know him and his wife and uh, just to be around him Mark Trotter fills the room when he walks in that's the kind of person he is he is so personable and so dynamic and all that and I say that I really wonder and I'm gonna say this out loud God why do you take people like that why do you take people like that? There's a, maybe four or five people like that over the years that I've seen go home prematurely and I wondered they were such wonderful Christian people and so influential. Lord, why do you take people like that? Now I have an answer to that too. I got the answer after asking that a couple times. And the answer is simply this. George, I want you to know this. I don't need you. You need me. God doesn't need Mark Trotter, and God doesn't need George Grace, and God doesn't need you. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to serve him. It's an honor to step in a pulpit or to stand before people and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It's a privilege. God doesn't need you. He'll find a way, but he's given us the privilege and never, never forget that. Never get a, such a big head that you think that God's got to use, use you specifically. He will use you if you make yourself available to him. And he'll give you the opportunity to develop your gifts and your talents to become everything he wants you to be. Do you want to be what God wants you to be? That's the question. And if you do, that's when he will use you, and that's when he wants to use you. But it is always a privilege. Father, we come to you tonight, and we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to come before this uh, great assembly of wonderful people, these pastors, these missionaries, these Bible teachers, these leaders, these elders of these church, church, churches, and people, no doubt, in a crowd this size, who haven't even come to a place of faith in Christ, but they're curious, they're interested, and I pray, 
while they are here this week, that something, Lord, you, someone, will prick their heart and bring them to the saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to a wonderful week here today, tonight, tomorrow, and throughout uh, Saturday until we go home. Lord, and I pray that some good things will be accomplished. There's many new and young people here that are looking for guidance and direction. Lord, help me and help us as teachers, as leaders, as elders, as, as disciples to accomplish that in them. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Now, this is kind of a sissy pulpit, isn't it? A music stand. This can hold a sheet of music, but this is a Bible. You see that? This doesn't weigh, you know, a half an ounce. This is a substantial piece of literature, and I'm going to crush this music stand when I put it down here again. Anyway, there's not quite enough room for the Bible in my notes, so I guess I better throw, no, I'll, I need my notes, I really do. I need the Bible more, but you need me to have my notes or we'll be in real trouble here tonight. I am, uh, I have a goal in mind, and uh, this is a little bit different in messages, from messages that I've preached before, but what I wanna do is uh, I want to uh, tie three sermons together that are going to magnify one theme, and that one theme is, and get it right now, that the Bible is a Jewish book. Now, don't turn, tune me out, because I know some of you say, well, I already know that, I can go home. Why don't we go over to the pizza shop and get coffee or get something like that? I'm gonna take three what I would consider to be controversial passages in the Bible, and I think that you'll agree with me on that. I'm gonna take them and I'm gonna tie them together to prove that point, but while I'm doing that, I want to try to settle, or at least give you some good reasons and some direction and where you should go in understanding these controversies and resolving them in your own mind. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to read it out loud and I won't wait for you to find it. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. Do you understand what that verse, that's a powerful verse. It says to always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. A reason. We're talking about thinking. Can you logically and rationally answer the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Could you answer that question in a way that it would convince or at least get someone else, someone who's on maybe the other side of the issue, could you say enough or something that would get them to stop and think about the question and really personally evaluate that? Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So if people have questions about the Bible or about your faith or why do you live the way you do or why do you spend money and go to a conference like this? Why do you take time, vacation time, family time? Why do you do that? What would your 
answer be? The kind of an answer that would be a compelling answer that would bring a person to think about it and say, hmm, I wonder why they look at it that way or why they say that or why that's so important to them. Hebrews chapter 5 says this, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Can you identify with that? Maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years, but you find yourself having to have to be taught over and over the same rudimentary, fundamental doctrines of the faith. You can't remember where the scripture is. You don't remember, I once had a good answer to that question, but I can't, I, I can't remember what I said back then. Are you that kind of a Bible student that you forget, you can't remember, or you engage in so, so, so few conversations that you're not rehearsed well enough. It says you need to be the, the you need the milk of the word and not strong meat. Do you find yourself like that? Well, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you know what that means, don't you? It means just what it says. It says if you want your faith to grow, it comes as a result of God's word. That's how your faith grows. So there isn't any substitute. Christian music, as much as I love it, as much as I love the worship here, this worship is for, but this doesn't necessarily make you a more knowledgeable Christian. It makes you an obedient Christian because we are supposed to worship God, but faith comes from the word of God. It doesn't come through uh, other means that you, by showing up for church on Sunday morning, and that's all. By parking cars in the parking lot, or being an usher, or what it is, engaging in some kind of religious activity. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So you could take <clears throat> all of those scriptures, you could kind of put them together and understand the Bible is really important. I'm supposed to be able to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of why I believe what I believe. Systematic theology teaches us what to believe. Now this isn't, uh, it's not the only thing it does, but there's a difference in systematic theology and apologetics to some degree. They overlap, but here's the difference. Systematic theology teaches us what the Bible says and what the Bible means. However, when you get to apologetics, we learn why it is true. Not just what do I believe, but why do I believe it? Why do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Now, I understand, well, I read it in the Bible. That's a good answer, it's a good answer. But if a person says, well, I don't believe the Bible, where do we go from there? So what's the next step? Where do you go? How do you take a subject like that and follow it through? So, my first uh, PowerPoint tonight is simply this. The key to understanding the Bible is the nation of Israel. I said the Bible is a Jewish book, and we're going to talk about that through all the messages here in these, uh, these evenings. So, God has a specific plan for and purpose for the nation of Israel. He has a wonderful destiny for them. 
However, they made a little bit of mess out of history and out of their future and out of the present. And so they're going to pay a price as a result of that. In fact, we read further on through the prophets and we read even into the book of Revelation that there, there is a price to pay for the apostasy that that nation has had. Understanding the importance of the nation of Israel in prophecy gives one the proper foundation to interpret the prophetical statements of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Revelation chronicles the final persecution, judgment, and sifting of Israel in the times of Jacob's trouble, which is a term that comes out of the book of Jeremiah, uh, and we call that the tribulation. God will bring his kingdom to earth, Messiah will reign as promised, but first, disobedient and rebellious Israel must be dealt with according to the Old Testament promises. Now, there's a lot of talk today about being pro-Israel and all that, and I understand why there's a truth in that politically uh, and even religiously because we as Christians do share some things in common, uh, certainly more in common with with Jews than we do with Islam or Hindus, etc., etc., etc. However, Israelites, the Jews or Israel, is really no friend of Christ right now. You understand that, don't you? I've heard a statistic, I don't know if this is true, but 70% of Jews in Israel are essentially practicing atheists or whatnot. They're not even worshiping Jehovah necessarily. So at this particular juncture in history, they're probably not in very good favor with the Lord, is what I'm saying. Understanding that Israel, oftentimes represented by its capital city, Jerusalem, is in the direct crosshairs and in, in, in great rebellion against Jehovah, we see that through all through the scriptures. They're being dealt with. Uh, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, the great prophets of the Bible show us that Israel found itself in lots of trouble. Zechariah, another one of those books, and I'm sure that you have read much of them. Some people, taking this a, a little bit further, understanding that Israel is, is represented by their capital city, Jerusalem, that represents the whole group of them, is in the crosshairs. We need to go really even to the end of the Bible, into, into the book of Revelation, and just in a, a quick survey myself, you're going to find references or implications of the nation of Israel in chapter 7, 12, 13, 14, 17, 18, 20, and 21. So in several chapters, even in the last book of the Bible, the, uh, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, are brought up. Particularly, one of the more difficult passages in the book of Revelation is Revelation chapter 17. that talks about mystery, Babylon the Great. There's all kinds of ideas and opinions on that. I, I'll give you a couple. The city of mystery, Babylon, is the city of Rome. The city is no city. It's every city. The city is Rome, the religious uh, uh, Rome, papal Rome. The country is America. The city is rebuilt Babylon in the country of Iraq. The city is Jerusalem, the religion is apostate Judaism. The city is Mecca, the religion is Islam. All of those opinions have come out of commentaries that I've read, people comment, comment, commenting on the book of Revelation. So a lot of confusion on that. The goal of these three messages is to tie together 
three very controversial sections of scripture to help make sense of each one understanding scripture's Jewish roots and nature. So let's begin with some of the more common attacks on scripture, all right? You've heard these, but first, how about Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 says that the, wor the words of the Lord are pure words. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3 that says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let me ask you, do you believe those statements? Do you believe that the words of the Lord are pure words? You, and then let me ask you this, why? Not just what do you believe about those statements, but why do you believe it? If someone who was not a man or woman of faith asked you, how would you respond to that? And I know you can say, well, my pastor told me, or it's found in the Bible. And those, both of those answers could be very true, but how far will they go with somebody who takes an atheistic perspective on the Bible and religion and everything that you and I hold dear? So here's some, some of the criticisms of the Bible. The Bible's filled with contradictions. It's unscientific. It's full of fabrications. It's uh, a fabrication of human imagination. It's a way that people use to control other people. It's a myth. The God of the Bible is mean and he's warlike. It's been copied and changed over and over. You don't even know what originally said. Uh, it's misogynistic and homophobic, and those are just a few of the attacks against Scripture. But the Bible is a Jewish book, and even that concept or that idea is attacked, okay? Is the Bible, is the Jewish Old Testament, is it really Jewish? Now, I know for some of you, you're going, uh, that's just a dumb question, but it has to be asked and it has to be answered when you're checking all the boxes. Is it or is it not? Well, we know that the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, are a collection of ancient religious Hebrews writings, and it's from them that we get our English or Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament consists of many distinct books by various authors produced over a period of centuries. Christians traditionally divide the Old Testament into four different sections, but I don't need to go into all of that. You could, you could pick up a, a, a book on the Bible and what's the Bible all about and all of these things that I'm mentioning right now, they'd be answered as basic questions about Scripture. But I want to talk about the book of Genesis. Because the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's the beginning book. And that book is probably the book that is attacked more frequently than any other book in Scripture. And why would that be? Well, if I can just destroy the underpinnings or the foundations of the Bible initially, if I can get people to think Noah's Ark is a fairy tale, a fabrication. There was no world flood. Adam and Eve are just representative characters of two uh, uh, highly intelligent monkeys that existed 50,000 years ago. Or if I can get people to believe that and undermine what is written in those first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, 
what are we going to believe about the rest of the Bible? The Bible says, for example, as in Adam, <laughs> he's a mythical character, of course, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, Christ is a mythical character also, right? I mean, Adam's a myth. Why would the comparison be made between some mythical character and somebody that really existed? It's all a myth. But you see how the thinking goes. People who attack the Bible, they like to chip away at the truths of the scripture. Now, here are several different controversies, and I'm not listing them all, that are found in the book of Genesis. Is it to be interpreted literally or figuratively? Is creation true or evolution? Global flood or local flood? Were the first humans Adam and Eve? How about Noah's Ark? Is that real? Where is it? Right, right. It's on Mount Ararat. Right. Let's go see it. Oh, we can't? <laughs> you know how people are on these things. How about the ages of individuals? Tell me, who lives to be 969 years old? You saw that in the book of Genesis, didn't you? That's old earth or young earth? How old is the earth? Eden? Where is Eden? Where is this garden that, that this Adam and Eve lived? How about the gap theory, or sin and Satan, or we could go on and on. There's lots of different controversies just in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Now, how do you deal with those? Because if somebody has any knowledge of how to get at your brain and try to discourage you from believing the scriptures, if they're smart, they'll get you in those first 11 chapters to undermine the foundation of the rest of scripture. So how are you going to defend your beliefs on the controversial issues that I just brought up? Now let me give you six models of origins that you're that you're going to find. Now, this particular list that I'm giving to you is from a book by Gerald Rao, uh, InterVarsity Press, page 41, and he comes up with what he believes is six general ways to interpret the creation uh, in the book of Genesis. The first one on the list is naturalistic evolution. You say, what is that? That's atheism. That's atheism. The second, non teleological, tele, teleological is speaking of design, so it's undesigned evolution. There's no design, it's all accidental. Deists of the past and today would buy into that and believe that. Not everyone, but many would. Planned evolution, that's called theistic evolution. There are a lot of Christians. I guarantee you that there are people in this room who are theistic evolutionists. And, and basically, you believe in a creator, you believe that he had a purpose, but you're not sure that he, you, don't, you don't believe that he's intervened, but you look at common descent. You believe in evolution in the sense that we've evolved from some primordial soup somewhere in everything we see now. We, a person who takes this position doesn't believe in the creation of two human beings, Adam and Eve. That's planned evolution. How about progressive evolution? That's or directed evolution or old earth creationism. I see some of you are sitting there and saying, I feel like I'm back in high school right now. 
And then the last one of these six is young earth creationism. Now, all of these are different positions on what the Bible teaches about creation. Which one do you believe? And why? This is a group of Bible students that are in here. Now, some of you are new, and maybe you feel like you already got in over your head here, but most of you in here want to know the truth, and you want to be willing to share it with other people and answer people's difficult questions. Are you willing to be a student and come up with not just the what's you believe, but the why's you believe it? Now, the term for that is apologetics. That means you have an answer for every man. That's what the word apologia means. I have an answer. It's an answer. Do you have an answer for the questions that people may ask you? What do you believe and why do you believe it? Here are some origins issues. And at the end of this list, I'm going to put you at ease because some of you out there, out there are trying to write notes. You gave up a long time ago. I know that. And that's okay. I'm going to tell you why that's okay, all right? So you don't have to write anymore, and I'll tell you why. These are issues that come up. There's six different main ways of looking at creation, but still, among people that believe these truths, these are issues. The gap theory, the day-age theory, the apparent-age theory, punctuated 24-hour theory, scientific creationism, 24-hour creation, framework hypothesis, historical creationism, intelligent design, and there are other things too. N none of the lists that I'm giving to you are exhaustive lists, other than lists I took out of a book to give to you. It's a list that some other author made up. So here's a whole bunch of issues. Now, why am I saying this? Because if I can undermine your belief in the book of Genesis because I'm asking you questions that you cannot answer or you have no idea it has the potential for undermining your faith. Do you understand that? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how do we answer these objections or these exceptions or these criticisms? I want you to think. I want you to think. Christians, unfortunately, are known for being unscientific and non-thinkers. We just walk around going, bah, bah, my pastor told me, bah, 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 bah. You believe in Adam and Eve? Of course I believe in Adam and Eve. It says so right there in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 3, bah, bah. Well, where'd the Bible come from? Oh, I don't know. You ask my pastor. You can come to church on Sunday and ask him. I don't know where it came from, but I believe it. I want you to know that. You see what I'm saying? I'm being a little bit humorous, but it's not funny, my friend. You get somebody that knows his or her stuff on this, and they will turn you every which way and make you look like a fool. And if you feel like a fool, you may walk away and look in the mirror and say, what the heck did I get myself into? I can't answer these questions. I don't know what they're talking about. And by the way, the person that asked the questions, they may not know what they're talking about either. 
But somebody told him, ask them this question. Isn't that what Jehovah Witnesses do when they come to your door? They ask you, well, do you not think that things are in bad shape in our country today? Duh! Who doesn't think that, you know? So you go, yes. They check the box. Yes, we got them. We're moving in a direction where we're going to get them to agree with us. Do you believe that there's a kingdom coming someday and Jesus Christ, you know, we're not talking about, we're not telling you, you understand what I'm saying. They're leading you down a primrose path, asking you questions that you're not sure how to answer them. And they're trying to, they're trained how to do this, by the way. Are you trained how to answer them? Hello? Have you worked at answering people like that? Have you worked at answering the atheist? Have you ever talked to an atheist and understand why they believe what they believe? Do you really think they believe what they believe? Do you? What do they believe? And then why do they believe it? And if they will open up a little bit, that's where you begin to get your foot in the door because their reasoning and their logic isn't all that sound. But if you feel like you're on the defensive and you're going, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll ask my pastor, come back next weekend. If you're on the defensive, you never get on the offensive because you don't know how to counter any of the questions that they've asked you. You're playing an away game, my friend. You're on the losing team. So anyway, here's a whole, now, this is why you don't have to worry about this. Because I have put all of my notes on the internet for you. <laughs> they are. Right now they are on the internet. If you went to this website and looked it up, I want one person to do this, all right? You ready? H-T-T-P-S. <laughs> Here it is. Now I know, I'm giving you the full address. Colon forward slash, forward slash. I know you don't use that, but here we go. Ready? FBBC.info, I-N-F-O, forward slash, sermon library, spelled correctly, I believe. My wife proofread my writing. Forward slash, A-C-R-2-1 for All Church Retreat 21, ACR 21. Now look up there, did you find something? What do you see there? You found, you found three places and my notes for all three of my sermons are on those three downloads. So, if you really care and you really want to know the whys, I'm gonna give you a little spiritually intellectual exercise that you can go through to get some answers to these questions. That's up to you. I went and got them myself. You have to go get them yourself or you have to get them in a Bible Institute or someplace where people like the pastors of these churches are teaching you and trying to equip you so you can be intelligent Christians who are going to go out and win people to Jesus Christ and not look like a bunch of boobs. You understand? 
I put my smiley face back on. <laughs> but I'm as serious as can be. Christians generally don't know what they're talking about. It's embarrassing. It's my fault. I look at my congregation, how stupid they are. Now, that's why I resigned. <laughs> that's why I resigned, Joe. I finally got out. I said, I can't believe how stupid these people are. And then I stopped and thought. The Holy Spirit spoke to me as I looked in the mirror. And he said, you know why they're stupid? Because you're stupid. <laughs> oh, boy. This is a true story. So I said, I'm, they're not going to be stupid anymore. I got up in front of the congregation many years ago and I said, if you don't know the answers to these basic questions one year from today, it's your fault. It's not going to be my fault because I'm going to give you the answer to these. I'm going to teach you, but you've got to come and get it. You have to be motivated. So all of the things, all of the materials for this sermon from Genesis, defining all of the things I've said that you were writing down and trying to figure out what's 24-hour, whatever, what is uh, directed evolution, they're all defined in, from pages 13 to 28 in, under the Genesis download there. They're all defined there. All right. Now, there are those who question the historical validity of Genesis, and in particular, as we said, the first 11 chapters. However, it's interesting to note Listen, let me tell you a brief story. Brief story is this. I was on the board of a college in Rochester. And I sat down at lunch with this fellow, um, his name, same name as me, George, and we started talking and I asked him, I knew what his background was. He had a PhD in biochemistry and biophysics, okay? Two PhDs. And so I asked him, I said, George, why do you believe in God? I knew he did because he was on the board of a Christian. I said, why do you believe in God? So we got in a conversation about this and the conversation went here. He went eventually to Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And he said, well, I don't believe, now he's a Christian man, he says, I don't believe that you, those are literal. I believe that those are figurative, those chapters. The characters Adam and Eve aren't real people, they're symbolic. Noah, symbolic. The flood, not necessarily. Tower of Babel, eh. uh, you know, Abraham, he's in Genesis chapter 11. All of those things. And I, I was dumbfounded, first of all, that he was on the board there. He was the head, he was the head of the graduate school at the University of Rochester with two PhDs. And he was a Christian man. But listen, he's influenced by science. Is science right or is the Bible right if and when they conflict with one another? And when you have two PhDs in the physical sciences and you're the head of a graduate school, when your students come in and ask you about these things, you better be siding with the university. Now, he's a wonderful man. He is, he's a wonderful man. However, He's bought into the lie or the deception of those first 11 chapters. So what I did is this. I went back and I looked up all of these people, did a little homework assignment. Adam is mentioned in 
not only in Genesis, he's mentioned in Deuteronomy, Job, 1 Chronicles, he's mentioned in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Jude, in the Gospel of Luke, and he's in the genealogy of Mary in 338. No passage ever gives a hint to the effect that Adam was a fictitious or symbolic individual. Jesus never refers to him as symbolic. By the way, I wrote him a letter and I wrote all this stuff down to him. And I asked him to answer this. Noah appears in 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel. He appears in Matthew, Luke, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter. What about him? Is he a real uh, character? How about all the references in all those other books? Are they just symbols? Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, Genesis chapter 11, he shows up 20 times in the Old Testament, 17 times in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament quotes Genesis 165 times with 200 allusions to the text, and 100 of them come out of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Or of the book of Genesis. Now, why do I believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is true because not, there's 19 other places in the Bible that mention the characters that are in those first 11 chapters and never in the Old Testament or New Testament does Jesus or any other figure refer to them as a fictitious, mythical, symbolic individual. As in Adam, all die, yes or no. True or false? So in Christ shall all be made alive. True or false? True or false? So I wrote a letter back to my friend, PhD. And I asked him, I say, what do you say about all these? Honestly, he never wrote me back. He never wrote me back. I don't know why. He went through some difficult problems in his family, a death in the family or something like that. He was older than me back then, and I never heard from him again. I don't know if he didn't have an answer to me, but he didn't give me an answer to all of that. So, what would you say? I didn't have an answer sitting over lunch with him, but I said, I'm going to get an answer because I believe that these are real people. And I think I have good reason to believe they're real people. And I came up with 19 reasons why I believe that they were good people and real people. You've got to have an answer. This is a, a quick thing that I'm going to refer to. How about did Moses write Genesis? This is one of the things that's attacked today. In fact, I just saw a program on television that said, oh, Moses didn't do this. One of the major attacks in the past 300 years has been against Moses himself. In the past few hundred years, the Bible has been under severe, uh, severe attack philosophically and scientifically. It's the most attacked book of the Bible, and uh, uh, particularly the first 11 chapters, as I've said. Long Age Geology, Big Bang Cosmology, Secular Archaeology, Liberal Theology, Philosophy, all of those disciplines attack the first 11 chapters of the Bible. What are you going to say? Why will you say it? The documentary hypothesis is what the theologians, the liberal theologians, came up with. And I think this is on the screen behind me, so I won't read it. But the belief is simply this, 
that Moses didn't really write this. However, there were four other author, authors and they've put it all together and kind of conspired. And really what you read in the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, really were composed by several different people over a different period of time, not by Moses himself. However, I will say this, I want to think, I thought about that, and so I went to my Bible to find out, does the Bible say that Moses wrote it? In 12 times in the New Testament, or excuse me, 12 times in the Old Testament, the Old Testament says that Moses wrote the law 12 times, 14 times in the New Testament. So, George Grace, what do you believe about who wrote the uh, law, the first five books? I believe that Moses did. Why? Because I have 26 biblical references in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that say he wrote it. That's an answer. That's an answer. So what is that? If that person's just looking to trip you up, what do you think they're going to say to that? Oh. <laughs> oh. They don't know how to answer that. Well, do you think they're all real true? Well, if half of them are, I got 13 places that say that. Moses had great qualifications to write. There's good reason for that. He was fully quali qualified to write those first five books. He received an Egyptian royal education according to Acts, and he was an eyewitness to the events recorded in Exodus according to the book of Deuteronomy. Now there's objections to these things, and they're in my notes, so you can read them. The biblical doctrine of inspiration of the scripture does not require us to conclude that all of the books of the Bible were written by God dictating to human authors. I, I emphasize dictating to human authors. Dictation was one means employed very often in the prophetic books, but much of the Bible was written from eyewitness experience and as a result of research by some of the authors and whatnot. So what is in the Bible has come to us through many different venues or channels. My conclusion to this is, there is abundant biblical and extra biblical evidence that Moses wrote the Pentateuch during the wilderness wanderings after the Jews left their slavery in Egypt and before they entered the promised land. As a prophet of God, Moses wrote under divine inspiration, guaranteeing the complete accuracy and absolute authority of his writings. Those writings were endorsed by Jesus himself and the apostles in the New Testament. Now, you can go to the New Testament and cite those. You can take what I'm saying beyond what I'm saying because questions do get generated along the way. Get the answer. Why do you believe that to be true? The attack on Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is nothing less than an attack on the veracity, reliability, and authority of the word of Almighty God. Now, when we talk about interpretation, I'm almost done now, I know. You feel like you're in a high school calculus class right now, or whatever it is. But the, I'm almost done, but bear with me through the end, and then I want you to ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? Begin to come up with some kind of logical reasoning or personal apologetic, that means a personal answer to some of the difficult questions that people ask you or you know they're going to ask you. We talk about hermeneutics. The term means biblical interpretation. And there are problems 
interpreting Scripture from the outside, or do we interpret Scripture from the inside? This is a big problem. Do we allow people, scientists and philosophers and theologians and archaeologists, do we allow them to interpret the Bible from their disciplines, or do we allow the Bible to speak for itself? Answer. What do you believe and why do you believe that? Why do you believe that allowing the scripture to interpret itself is the proper means of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation? Why? That's a big argument. What's the answer to the question? Again, somebody who knows his or her stuff and they put you, on, put you with that question, they put that question to you, what are you going to say to that individual? Hermeneutics basically is, what's the explanation of what does it mean? So we've got what does it say, what does it mean, and then how do I apply the meaning to myself? Those are the three big questions when we read anything. All right, almost done here. One's views on creation are not essential to salvation. So let me address that right now. If you have bought into one of these, one of these theories here that after you investigate, you find out that you were kind of a little cockeyed on that thing, that doesn't necessarily invalidate your salvation. We're not talking about the theology, soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation right now. We're talking about the book of Genesis and the attempt on many people to undermine the authority of the whole Bible on the basis of undermining one book, the first book in Scripture. That's what we're talking about. If we get in a controversy, we should grant brothers and sisters in Christ the responsibility to come to their own decisions, answer their questions, but don't get mad at them and start arguing with them about it. There is room for civil discussion in this. We must understand general revelation through the filter of written revelation and not vice versa. What does the Bible say? That's why the Bible is so important to us. We need to know what it says, what it means, and how to apply it to ourselves. We need to understand that language does allow wiggle room for meaning interpretation. There's wiggle room in there. You know, there's words that we use that a person has to stop you in a conversation and say, well, what did you mean by that? Because the word has wiggle room. They're not sure exactly what you meant by using that word, or maybe you used the wrong word. Second Timothy chapter 3 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, do you believe that? See, this is, as a Bible teacher, as a Christian, I have to come to grips with this. Do I believe what the Bible says, or do I allow George Grace to criticize what the Bible says? Does the Bible criticize or critique me, or do I critique the Bible? What do you think? Where are you? Why are you there? Why are you there? We must be more concerned about what God has spoken than what science has declared. If it comes to a face-off between a scientific statement about evolution and a biblical statement about creationism, 
and we are interpreting what people are saying in both cases properly, and they're contradicting one another, which one do you go by? Which one do you follow? So, we're talking about the first 11 chapters, and we're talking about, is the Bible a Jewish book? You say, how does that come in? Well, I think you can figure it out. However, you know where Abraham is first mentioned in the Bible? He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 11. So, is Abraham a fictitious character like Noah, or Eve, or Nimrod, or the serpent? Are those all symbols? Is that a myth? Is that true? Is Abraham a real character? Well, if there's problems with those first 11 chapters and Abraham is a myth, you know, if you go to Romans chapter 4, you're going to read about what faith is all about in the best illustration in the New Testament of what faith is. And you know who the main character is? Abraham. So throw Abraham out of your Old Testament and throw him out of the book of Romans in Romans chapter number 4. He also shows up in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11. Some significant and important things are said about him. Is he a real person or is he not? Now the goal of these messages tonight, tomorrow, and the following night is to tie together three very controversial biblical sections of Scripture to help us understand the Jewish roots and nature of the Bible. If I can get Moses out of the authorship of the law, if I can declare jo uh, excuse me, Noah and Adam and Eve and Seth and Cain and Abel and Enoch, and you can go through that whole list in those first 11 chapters. If that's all fictitious, you can undermine the authority of Scripture. So what good is the Scripture? We're hanging on it. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I have taken all of my chips, people. All of my chips, if I can use a gambling analogy. And I have put my chips on... I believe Romans 10, 17, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And I believe that I shouldn't be learning things over and over and over and over. I should exercise and use what I learn so I got it in here rather than only in there. I need to do that. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And the great story of the Israelite people begins with Grandpa Abraham, or Abram, in Genesis chapter 12. The Bible is a Jewish book. I'll make thee a great nation. I'll bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. True or false? Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. You believe it or not? The Bible 
is a Jewish book. Are the first 11 chapters of Genesis legitimate? Abraham begins the story of the Israelite nation as the progenitor. He's the father of Isaac, the grandpa of Jacob, who is Israel, Genesis chapter 32. And the destruction of Scripture begins in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1-1 specifically, and continues to the progenitor of the nation of Israel in chapter number 11. To make things even muddier, the Jewish authorship of Moses' question to attempt to further delegitimize the book of Genesis and to undermine your belief and your faith in what this book says. That's why this is important, people. And you are students, and you need to learn these things and be prepared to give an answer to every man that asketh of the hope that lieth within you with meekness and fear. Meekness how? I need to be humble in how I deal with people about these issues. I don't need to get into fisticuffs. I don't need to scream and yell and call them names. With meekness and fear. Fear, why? Because you have the opportunity to be a witness to somebody. You may be the only person they'll ever talk to, and you better be prepared to answer their questions. You better fear God, because you have a responsibility to pass that information as a Christian onto this individual who stands in need of the shed blood of Jesus Christ to come to salvation and forgiveness of sins. And you have a responsibility. And you need to be fearful about that. I am so concerned about knowing what I'm talking about because I'm going to be held accountable for it. I'm going to study. I'm going to get in a Bible institute. I'm going to start reading my Bible if you haven't. Maybe you're a new believer here. Get in the book. There are few places in this country that have more opportunities to learn the Bible than this group of people, and we will be held accountable for what we didn't know. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're going to move tomorrow night into the New Testament. We're going to move into another book of the Bible. And we're going to look at some controversy there. And we're going to challenge the opinions of others. And Lord, we're going to take this to the next step. How can we be good students of Scripture and be prepared to give an answer to every man that asks the hope of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear? God, help us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all the people said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you.